you should have all been here during the week. Now, I know some of you had to work, but I can tell you that uh, kids' summer camp, that is, uh, one of the, that is a highlight of the summer for sure. And it was great to be able to meet a bunch of the kids, some of the families, and uh, learn some great songs, see some amazing crafts, and uh, it, was, it was wonderful. And I thought it would be great to take some time just to praise our God in prayer, and also to, to pray. As was mentioned earlier, Al Hull, Al and uh, Joan used to come to our church for a number of years before they moved out to Maple Ridge. And, uh, and so with Al's passing, that'll obviously leave a big void in Joan's life. And Elizabeth Bernowski, a number of you probably don't know her because she has been in a care home for the last number of years. And yet those of us who have, uh, who have known Elizabeth, you know, she just really tough background, came to faith, you know, as an adult, and just grew so much through the really the hardships, especially in the latter years of life. And uh, wanna, we are not going to have an official service, but we are going to have a gathering, and we'll let you know about that uh, probably around, around the middle of August, um, but we will uh, let you know middle of August, maybe the end of August or beginning of September. So let's pray together this morning. Oh, Creator, God, and Savior, Lord, we thank you that you are the one who made the wonders of heaven and earth. And Lord, uh, you are also the God who restores. Lord, I thank you for just the wonderful songs and message that we were able to share, so many were able to share this week, Lord, and to shine your light. For Lord Jesus, you said you are the light of the world. And we thank you that you are the one that lightens even the darkest moments in life. Even, Lord, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil because you are with us, the light of your presence. Lord, I pray especially for Joan, Lord, in this time and with the upcoming memorial service for, for her husband, Al. Lord, we ask that uh, the hope of Christ, Lord, would just fill them anew. And Lord, we also thank you for your servant, Elizabeth, we thank you, Lord, through the hardships and challenges of life, Lord, that you were her good shepherd. And we thank you, Lord, that you have taken her home to be with you, where there is no sorrow or sighing or hardship. Lord, as we open your word today, we pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we would see your glory and your wonder anew. Amen. Well, our summer series is Divine Signposts in Our Everyday World. Many of us live far more connected to our virtual worlds than we do to the natural world. Even this morning in the room that I was in, the clock was stopped at 9 o'clock. I had lots of time until I left that room and entered real reality, and it was much later than that. Well, in our virtual reality, we miss many of the opportunities and signposts that God has given in everyday life to help us to connect more deeply with Him. In recent weeks, we've explored galaxies uh, and the sun and what they have to teach us about God. Today, we'll be moving from space to earth as we explore God's gift of mountains and what they have to teach us about Him. 
Uh, by the way, today I'm going to be borrowing heavily from a, from a book that I highly recommend by Andrew Wilson called, called God of All Things. And if you are Kindle readers, you know, or uh, electronic, it's on sale this month on Amazon for $4. So a deal as well. Well, uh, like these mighty kings of the earth, as they rise over all the world and even up from the ocean floor, you know, if I was to ask, what is the highest mountain in the world? Many would undoubtedly respond, Mount Everest, right? Towering at uh, 8,850 meters, or those of you who are still in the feet, it's over 29,000 feet. And uh, that is above sea level. But actually the tallest mountain, when measured from top to bottom, is... No, not K2. Good guess, though. Mauna Kea, an, active, an inactive volcano on the island of Hawaii. Measured from the base below ocean, Mauna Kea rises over 10,000 meters, 10,203 to be exact, though it only rises 4,205 meters above sea level, so it doesn't look like the tallest. 30 of the world's tallest mountains are in the Himalaya. Kenchengunga, that's easy for me to say, no. <laughs> Kenchengunga is the third highest mountain in the world, right behind Everest and K2 that someone mentioned. But probably you've never heard of it. It is breathtakingly beautiful, as you can see. But climbers have generally avoided it for several reasons. It's very remote, for one. It also consists of five peaks in two countries, so there are border issues. But probably the main reason it is never, summit has never been reached is because the first climbers promised the Kojiol, that is the local ruler, that it would, never, that it would remain undisturbed. And subsequent groups have followed that tradition. Kanchenkunga is a giant and beautiful mountain with five distinct peaks. And actually, its name means five treasures, that is, for the five peaks. It spans national borders and towers over its neighbors, a mountain that most people have never thought of and never fully scaled. And we're going to come back to this mountain a little bit later. But first, to the Bible. If you've ever read the Bible with mountains in mind, as I was recently, you will quickly notice how often they appear. Uh, the word, the various words for mountain, collectively, appear in the Bible more often than the words cross, grace, and gospel put together. If you've ever traveled to Israel, you may find it surprising, because uh, for we who live in especially for we who live in, in, you know, British Columbia among the mountains. The territory in Israel, it's definitely not flat like it is on the prairies where I grew up in Manitoba. There is a mountain range of, of sorts that you can see on the slide running, you know, north to south down the middle. But its highest points, uh, I'll show them on the next picture, are, are low compared to our mountains. Mount Caramel, for example, Carmel, where Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. Well, it's not much higher than our local Westwood Plateau, okay? And uh, 
You know, Jerusalem, it uh, is still lower. It's one of the higher points, but it's still lower than Cyprus Mountain and definitely much lower than the Golden Ears Mountains. Much of Israel is actually made up of coastal plains to the west, the Negev Desert to the south, and the Jordan Valley to the east. That just seems high because the Dead Sea is so low. So why are mountains mentioned in the Bible so often? Not because of their geographical prominence, but because of their theological significance. They matter because of what they represent. They represent giant obstacles that only God can move. They represent great age and longevity. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole earth, God, you're even older than that. Or they represent stability. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. Or challenges that require great faith. Remember, Jesus said, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the seas and does not doubt and, but believes, and it will be done, he said. But to move a mountain, that would require great, great faith. The mountains also reflect different aspects of God, his majesty, his power, his righteousness. Your righteousness is like the highest mountain, says the psalmist, and his abundance since the mountain slopes were often in Israel the most, the greenest and most fruitful areas, the place of the pasture lands and, and some of the orchards. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, said the psalmist, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. And in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 11, the promised land is described as a, a land of mountains and valleys that drink rain from heaven. And yet the mountains... Powerful and majestic though they are, they also quake before the Lord. The very foundations of the mountains shake at his anger, says Psalm 18, verse 7. Even when the mountains collapse, I know of one, 1965, up the valley by hope. The big hope slide. Even on rare occasions when mountains collapse, Psalm 46 reminds us that God is greater and more stable even than the mountains. He is an ever-present help for those who have made him their refuge and strength. Perhaps one of the more, most important ways in which the mountains function in the Bible is as places where people encounter God. People like Abraham... Moses, Israel, Elijah. Virtually all the ancient peoples actually worshiped their gods on the high places. That word occurs often in the prophets. And they did that given the high places' proximity to the heavens. It must be the closest access that we have to God. Many people are familiar with the opening lines probably of Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills or to the mountains. Where does my help come from? What we may not realize, and the psalmist will say, my help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. But what we may not realize is when the psalmist said that and looked up at the high places, there was probably altars and smoke and fires going up from these high places where people were, off, were worshiping their own gods, gods of nature often. 
And it was on these various mountains that they would have seen them, and people were calling on alternate sources of help. So in our day, when people get into trouble, they call on technology, right? They call on political power, or firepower, or finances. And the psalmist is saying, I'm seeing all of the alternate things that people are trying to put their confidence in. But my help comes from the Lord, the maker of all of this. When God appears to his people, he frequently does so on a mountain. The very setting itself, think of it, it communicates a combination of height and exaltation, grandeur and beauty, proximity to the heavens, and supremacy over all the earth. Mountains communicate also something of the vast distance between us and God. I mean, I've seen Mount Baker how much of my life? Never been there yet. (laughs) I don't know. Um, uh, Climbing to the top of many of the mountains requires advanced preparation and great effort. Or we may find ourselves overcome by challenging conditions or by changes in air pressure. I remember being in Colombia a number of years ago, going up Mount Surat, the highest point in Bogota, right on the, uh, right on the equator. And I found, boy, am I this out of shape? Yes, I was. But even more so, I'm like gasping, and it's like, oh, because you're over 10,000 feet above sea level. The air starts to get pretty thin. See, by summoning people to meet him at the summit, God reminds us how much higher, how much other than us he is, and how much needs to be done in order for us to encounter him. And we dare not approach him flippantly. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord, says the psalmist in Psalm 24, verse 3. And he says it, I think, with deep reverence. Yet mountains, they are also places of grace. Mountaintop encounters with God are moments not just of distance or of challenge, but also of presence, commission, sacrifice. We climb up toward him, but at the same time, he descends down toward us, and the distance he covers is far more vast than any distance that we may cover. And ultimately, in Christ, God himself descends to the lowest and even the lowliest places on earth to lift us and invite us into a life-changing relationship with him, the creator of all things. Whenever we make any ascent, we do well to remember. Maybe next time you're climbing, remember that the greatest descent to us was to save us. Reminded of the uh, blind beggar uh, in the Gospels. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me at the lowest of lows, and there was the Son of God himself there to lift him up. The stories in the Bible also show us that mountains are places of revelation, of promise, of covenants. I had not realized it before, but all five of the major covenants of the Old Testament, those with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, are associated with mountains. Andrew Wilson likens God's covenant promises to 
Chungjenga, as we, with its five distinct treasures or peaks. And the five peaks, they all form one giant, beautiful whole. But many people have never thought about uh, them, but they span national borders. They tower over their neighbors. And so Andrew Wilson uses that as an image to talk about the five covenants. And, and we're going to take a little journey through the Bible, looking at these peaks briefly, each one. The first covenant mountain, the five covenants, the promises that God makes. The first one that we encounter in the Bible is actually in Eden. Now, the word mountain is not used in Genesis 2, but in verse 10 it says, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. Water doesn't flow uphill, right? Flows downhill, and just uh, lest any doubt, Ezekiel 28, verses 13 to 14. In verse 14, it is called the mountain, Eden, the mountain of God. So human beings... There they are at creation, looking over the abundant foothills down before them, knowing that God had given this wonderful home, or given a great commission. Now work it and take care of it, he says in Genesis 2.15. Andrew Wilson likens this, this is like base camp, he says, okay? The covenant with Abraham, it does not reach uh, the same heights as the peaks which will follow, but it is the one we first meet on our trek on the way to reaching the others. The second one of note chronologically is in Genesis 8 verse 4, Mount Ararat. That's where the ark bumped into after the flood there and settled and they came out. Following the great flood, Noah steps out of the ark onto a mountainside. He has been saved by, from God's judgment by grace, God's grace simply because it says he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God makes a second covenant with Noah and his descendants. He recommissions Noah like he did Adam. So it's like a whole new world, and he says, once again, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And he grants expanded menu options. Yes, Meat is now on the diet. Steak, okay? With limits, no blood in it. But with these conditions comes a promise. A second covenant. Never again will all of life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. And with that promise comes a sign. I have set my rainbow or bow in the clouds. That is, God is still committed to dealing with sin... He's got to, he has to limit its deadly effects or everything will die. But he will not use such a drastic solution. And that image is he has hung up his military bow. That's the rainbow, okay? He's hung up that military bow in the sky as a permanent reminder for all to see. So how exactly he's going to deal with the problem of sin, because it starts happening right away with Noah, the story tells us. And how he's going to rescue creation from sin and death, that is not yet realized, but a promise is given. And greater clarity is given at the next mountain, at Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. Abraham, Abraham has already been gifted with amazing promises from God and the miraculous gift of a son, you know, in his advanced old age. And yet, 
He now has his son. His son is growing and is, has his future is probably feeling more secure than it has felt for many years. God tells him to take his one and only son and to sacrifice him. Think of it. Sacrifice all of the hopes and dreams. And in an act of heart-rending obedience, Abraham binds his son Isaac to an altar on the mountain. And he raises his knife, ready to plunge it into his son. But at that very moment, God tells him to stop and orders him to use a substitute that God has provided, a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham and all of his descendants after him, it says, called the place on that mountain, the Lord will provide. Abraham must have left wondering about the meaning and purpose of it all. Why, why did I have to do this? But that too, one day would be revealed. The next mountain on our chronological journey through the Bible is, is Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. We often think of Sinai as merely the mountain where God gave his people a list of rules and regulations of ob obligations rather than its promises. And, and they are obligations, as they are in any covenant. Marriage vows, right, include promises. But we dare not miss the glorious promise at the heart of this marriage-like covenant between God and his people. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 5, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did for you. That is, this grace in redeeming you out of that land of slavery. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Think about that for a moment. They were nobodies. They were just work units in Egypt. And now you are going to be kings and priests in my kingdom. Moses, basically God is saying, Moses, make sure they know why this matters so much. Well, if Mount Ararat with Noah left us wondering how God would rescue the world without destroying everyone, and Mount Moriah showed, it, showed us that it would be through the offspring of Abraham, Mount Sinai shows that it will come through the nation of Israel, serving, uh, serving the world as God's kings and priests. And the fifth covenant mountain on the journey is Mount Zion, the site of Jerusalem, the place of the holy temple. On Mount Zion, King David is told, he's, told, he's telling God, you know, you're still living in a tent, in a tabernacle. I want to build a house for you. And uh, the prophet says, yes, go do it. But then God gives the prophet a message and he says, no, tell David, I'm going to build a house for him. A house, a name, a throne, the steadfast love of God, an everlasting kingdom it will be. And in the years that follow this, further clues are given along the way of this coming hero, the Messiah, the anointed one he is called, to be, that he's to be born in Bethlehem through a virgin mother, and he will be announced by a prophet like Elijah. And when Jesus finally arrives, we are able to see Kachinjunga's five treasures, all as part of one giant mountain 
the work that God has been doing, the most glorious of all. And to quote Wilson, Andrew Wilson once again, Christ fulfills all five covenants at once. Edens by defying the devil's garden temptations. Errats by committing to love his enemies rather than destroying them all. Moriah's by offering himself as a willing substitute. Sinai's by serving the world as the perfect priest king. And Zion's by establishing an everlasting kingdom. By the way, in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly going up and down mountains. He teaches at one. We're studying that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. That doesn't mean he went down for a, sat down for a picnic. That was teaching time in that day. They would sit down to teach. He not only teaches on the mountain, he prays on a mountain. He's transfigured on one. He gets betrayed on one. He is crucified on one. And he ascends into heaven from one, from the Mount of Olives. Some passages even suggest that he will return on that mountain. And rather fittingly, I think the last scene in the book of, in the, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21 verse 10, it is viewed, it says, from a great high mountain. It wants us to get the whole panorama of God's amazing grace and salvation. It is the great fulfillment, actually, of the vision that God gave back in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. He will repeat it to Micah. He says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Before I pray this morning, I just, I want to invite you to, to just reflect on this great gloriousness that God has given, these mountains that point to him in so many ways, but especially the ways of how God has revealed himself to us. But he was, he was crucified on a hill of Golgotha for us. This God who is teaching us about all this grandeur of the world, and yet he comes down into the very greatest places of destruction and darkness to give light and life and hope. And that's for us. We don't have to, many religions teach that we have to work our way up to God. Christianity says, no, God made the great descent to us in order to lift us up, to save us from our sins so that we might be with him in glory forever and ever. And so the invitation stands and comes to us, each of us today, to surrender our lives to this great king, the one who came to give himself for us that we might be changed. I want to invite the worship team to come up, and as they come, let's pray. O creator God, you have made this world glorious indeed. 
And yet, Lord, as we open up your word, we see, we see the, the places, Lord, you have come to reveal yourself, the places where you have come to sacrifice yourself, the depths that you have come, Lord, in order to save us. Lord, we want to thank you this morning. And as we maybe are even climbing a mountain this week, or at least a hill, Lord, may we be reminded of the even greater effort that you took to come to us. And that you bridged that gap and that distance, Lord, so that we might be reconciled to you. That our lives might be changed by knowing you, the living God. Amen. Thank you, Heather and worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. I think I've got a homework assignment for you. Go climb a mountain. You think I'm kidding. I think it would be a great idea. I'll give you one week's advance notice. All I need is a volunteer to lead us on a hike up a reasonable mountain next week. Next Sunday afternoon, maybe? Yes? I have, a, I have a few in mind that there's an easy way to get up in a more challenging way. But if you're one of those volunteers and you said, yeah, I could, I could lead that, uh, that would be a glorious experience together, I think. So that's your homework assignment this week is to prepare for that. Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, just a, a reminder that each Sunday after the service, there's an opportunity uh, for prayer. And Gordon and Annette Waddell will be just down here uh, up at the front, and they would love to pray with you. Maybe you have a praise the Lord item. I've got a, some prayer items that came up this week, and I have a glorious praise the Lord item too. And I'm thanking God every day for answer to prayer for a dear friend. And, uh, and so I encourage you, take advantage of that. And, and if you're talking with someone and something comes up and you say, you know, I'm, I'm visiting with Faye during the week when she comes and we're talking about something and it's like God answered a prayer to that. We like, we pause right there and we say, thank you, Lord, for this. And when something, a need comes up, we say, please, Lord, it's as simple as that, talking to God. I encourage you to do that. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.